Episode 4 The Final Bell In the middle of the last decade, I was a long way from home on sports business with the Irish Daily Star. During that trip, I arranged an interview with an Irish boxer and we met up where he was staying with his family. I was blown away when I walked through the door. It was a fabulous apartment of a standard that was rare in those parts. I mentioned this to the boxer and he told me that the apartment was owned by Daniel Kinahan. He wasn't signed up with Kinahan, but that was where he was staying. I knew Kinahan's name. I knew who his father was. I knew what Daniel Kinahan was accused of being. But I didn't press any harder. We did the interview without any further mention of him. Kinahan's name didn't appear in the piece. There were plenty of pats on the back for the interview. But I knew I'd bottled it. Getting into the Kinahan story meant going into unfamiliar territory. Places I'd never been before and didn't particularly want to go. But the lost story nagged at me. That was the impetus to start digging. All sorts of people have been digging for years. It's the involvement of the American authorities that is most significant. Their decision to impose sanctions on the Kinahans and related companies and to offer seven-figure rewards for information relating to the capture of Daniel Kinahan, his father Christie, and his brother Christie Jr., has changed the game. Here's Michael O'Toole, crime journalist of the year. I think this is the start of the end for Kinahan. Um, I was really stunned by the revelation about the $5 million, up to $5 million reward for each of the Kinahans. Really, I, I didn't see that coming. Obviously, we broke certain elements of it in the Star shortly before the press conference. We knew about the uh, the no fly list, and we knew about you know the sanctions being put on, particularly Daniel Kinnan. But I I was completely stunned by the five million dollars, and I knew that uh, I had information that there were certain Americans were in Ireland maybe a week before this whole thing was announced in the press conference. But when the you know, the calibre of, you know, I mean, the American ambassador to Ireland speaking at it, very, very other, very senior people from the US Treasury and everything. I mean, this is, you know, unprecedented and there were real heavy hitters. So up until now, I think Kenan has been able to bluff and bluster and persuade people that it's all a median vendetta and he's just an ordinary young lad who, you know, he's doing his best to get on in life. But, you know, you're talking about very, very senior people in American authority and in American society are nailing him and comparing him to the Yakuza, the Russian mafia, the mafiosi in Italy. I really could not get my head around this. So, you know, for every action, there is a reaction. And I've no doubt that there'll be serious consequences from the the, 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 the move by all the three countries, Britain, Ireland and America against Kenan. And it's not going to end well for him. He, I can't see how he can get out of this. I think that the buzzword is exponentially. The chances of Kinahan being kicked out of Dubai have increased exponentially because of the the, the measures that have been announced by the the, the the international authorities. This this really is a game changer. I I I just find it hard to see how he can survive, but I also find it hard to see how Dubai can possibly ignore this. They can ignore. They can largely ignore Ireland, and they have largely ignored Ireland. But we have seen a trend in the last few months, in the last year perhaps, where more people are being kicked out 
of Dubai. Now, look, there's obviously plenty of people still in Dubai and there's plenty of Kenan heads who weren't named in the press conference and who weren't sanctioned, who are very senior players in his cartel and they will still be in Dubai. But this is about taking off the head of the serpent and that's that's Daniel Kenan really. And I just think that, you know, Dubai will be able to shrug us off or act slowly or not be as fast as they could, but it is a completely different matter when it comes to dealing with America. I think the mistake he made was prosecuting the, the, the feud against the Hutch family and ordering murders. Because what would how many people would have known about Daniel Kenyon's criminality if, like his father, he kept his head down and didn't really, you know, have all this bling and sort of stuff in, in the criminal aspect. So it would have been very difficult for journalists like us to really point out his criminality if he kept such a, kept a low profile. And there have been more than you know, probably more than 16 people murdered because of his gang. So, you know, the, the fault and the blame lies with him in ordering these murders and being very, very aggressive. Personally, I think if he just stayed in the background, kept a very, very low profile, didn't get involved in this feud, didn't prosecute the feud, didn't lead the feud, he would have just been another fella that maybe I would be talking about in the pub going, see your man, he's up to his neck in this. And everybody would say, oh, he's a normal businessman because there wouldn't have been that level of media coverage about his criminality. So in my opinion, he has brought this all on himself, but not by getting involved in boxing, but by prosecuting the feud. The Kinahan story is one that showed the worst of the sports media, but it showed the best too. One who stuck his head above the parapet is Matt Christie, the editor of Boxing News. Effectively, the magazine is the trade paper of the sport in the UK. It's one that is heavily dependent on boxing advertising, and there is often pressure to keep those with power in the sport on the right side. But Christie knew this was a story that couldn't be ignored. The whole thing first came to mind for me in 2016, where there was the shooting in Dublin, where I felt that as Boxing News, we wouldn't be doing our job as Boxing News has done it historically since it was founded in 1909, um, if we didn't address it. Already, um, MTK were involved with a lot of fighters that we knew about behind the scenes. Um, and being a weekly magazine as well, it's also very, very important that you can speak to these fighters. And if you're spending half the magazine being critical or doing investigations into a management group that are representing those fighters, then quite naturally, some of those fighters may not want to talk to you. So we had to go about it quite carefully. Um, so we were very, very careful about how we referenced MTK. I'm quite confident you can go back throughout, really, all the way back to 2012 for when it was MGM, right through MTK, that you're not going to find a great deal of positivity about MTK as a management group. What you will find is positivity about the fighters. So that was our focus. We're very conscious about how we um, addressed MTK within fight reports and in fight interviews, sorry, in fighters' interviews. But then, of course, when it happened in 2020, when you had people like Bob Arum and Tyson Fury kind of um, almost giving Daniel Kinahan clearance to come forward as a respectable and uh, legitimate figure in the sport of boxing, for me, that was kind of the final straw. I thought we can't we can't appear to be silent anymore on this. We can't appear to. Um, have no opinion on this when we did have an opinion on it, but we were just a little bit reluctant to voice it from our platforms. Um, and that really was the turning point in our attitude towards 
both MTK and Daniel Kinahan. Maybe it was down to Raging Bull. It could even have been Rocky. But filmmakers became obsessed with boxing during the 1980s. From John Huston to Martin Scorsese, from Brian De Palma to Robert Wise, so many directors have been drawn to the fight game over the years. There was one who was obsessed with joining that company, so he became a regular on big fight nights, wangling a backstage pass so he could get an inside view of a strange old business. There was one night where he got lost, wandering corridors in the bowels of a vast arena. He opened one door and found a boxer on his knees, praying with a priest. He opened another door and came upon two sharp-dressed young men, hoovering cocaine off a table piled with wads of banknotes. He left with the germ of an idea. That was how to start his boxing film. That summed up boxing. That filmmaker is from Dublin. The boxer and priest are Irish. The fight was in Ireland. The story is from decades ago, but it carries an echo. The best writer in the boxing game is currently Donald McRae of The Guardian. The South African has turned his attention to Ireland too, with his book In Sunshine and in Shadow, a look at the impact of boxing north of the border. McRae's most celebrated book on boxing came out in 1996 and traced his own personal journey into the sport. For a title, he chose two words. Dark trade. But the rise of Kinahan and the way he was welcomed, raises a question. Is it now a darker trade than ever? I think it is. Um, you know, when that book came out in, in 96, yeah, the, the, the title, I think, was apt because Boxing fundamentally is a business. It's a murky, dirty business. It's about money. Um, and there's a darkness to it because in their quest to make money, people who control boxing don't actually care how that money is made. As long as their pockets are lined, they will continue to, to do um, quite negative and, and dark things. Some people said to me, oh, but this is how boxing has always been. You only have to go back to the 1930s and the 1940s in Chicago, New York, in the US, when the mafia were heavily involved in boxing. And so some would say, well, this is just boxing. Who cares? It's the same old thing. Why are you getting bothered now? So that was in the 1990s. But I think what has happened with, with the Kinahan saga and the way in which the US enforcement agencies have been so clear in what they think he is involved in makes me think it is a far, far darker business at the moment. And certainly the last few years for me have been amongst the most, it will certainly have been the most depressing I've ever known within boxing. Hopefully there's a chink of light now because I think Kinahan's um, direct involvement in boxing, certainly by people who know more than me, they all suggest that that is over. But yeah, it's darker than it's ever been, and we can only hope that somehow enough change is made to give back a little light to a sport that actually also does a lot of good. Sandra Vaughan is the former CEO of MTK Global, the company owned by Kinahan for many years, and one where he still acted as an advisor to many of their fighters. Professional boxing has gone down the road of moving away 
from traditional media and embracing podcasters and YouTubers. Some of them are actually financed by various boxing bodies, so hard questions aren't likely to be on the agenda. In 2020, Vaughan gave an interview to IFL TV, a YouTube outfit with close ties to MTK. At one stage, she talked about the perception of Kinnahan in Ireland, and especially in the Irish media. This is what Vaughan had to say. They are going to have at some point acknowledged the fact that, as I say whether they like it or not, people like Bob Arum, Frank Warren, Eddie Hearn, all of these big fights will happen because of Daniel Kinnahan. That is fact. The other part is fiction. I don't know whether it is the Irish mentality, but at some point, would you not be proud that someone from inner city Dublin is actually sitting at the table with that level of organisation making fights? For Ireland, would you not be proud of that? Would you not be proud that someone has got out of that inner city life and made a huge success? That's what Vaughan had to say. We all know by now who Daniel Kinnan is and what he is. Many in boxing don't care and never cared. Some others, like Sandra Vaughan, painted him as a working-class hero. Go to the Five Lamps. Walk the streets around there where the blood was spilled. Would you not be proud? Last year, I spoke to Thomas Hauser, one of boxing's greatest writers, and the man who wrote the definitive biography of Muhammad Ali. At one stage, Daniel Kinahan came up in our conversation. Hauser knows his boxing history, and he dismissed out of hand the notion that the past can excuse where the sport is now. This is what he said to me. You can also justify slavery and say it's in the Bible. If you look at Leviticus, there's a chapter and verse that justifies slavery. It was used for centuries by the church to prop up slavery. What used to happen can't be used to justify what's happening now. Even though boxing's image has taken a battering at regular intervals for decades, Donald McRae feels Kinahan's involvement has hurt it grievously. In terms of the larger damage that has been done to boxing, I think the reputational damage has been significant. You know, boxing has always been dismissed as being part of the red light district of sport, where the worst things happen in sport um, are allowed to happen in boxing. But I think this actually took us to an even darker place. And when people outside of boxing actually heard and began to understand that boxing had not only turned a blind eye to Daniel Kinahan, but had welcomed him into boxing with open arms. I think that just made people outside of boxing who constantly knocking it and would like to see it abolished. They had even more fuel to the fire that they could say, this, is, this actually sums up what boxing is. Um, it's utterly lawless. Uh, so I think the reputational damage to battered business anyway was significant. There are plenty in boxing who lament MTK's passing. They argue that the company treated boxers, trainers and employees far better than others in the fight game. That is an indictment of boxing, though. Many say the same thing about Kinahan. When someone with Kinahan's background is described as one of boxing's good guys, then the sport has a problem. This should be a pivotal crossroads for professional boxing. 
this should be an opportunity for serious reform. I think the people in the boxing bubble do have a kind of almost um, self-righteous, almost inflated view of how healthy the sport is. Um, and I think you can look at an event like Tyson Fury versus Dillian White. And what I would say, that is not evidence of a healthy sport. It's evidence of how healthy the sport could be if it did things correctly. Um, and I think, will we get another event like that this year in this country where you'll get 94,000 people there? Perhaps if Tyson Fury goes back on what he's, he's currently saying he's going to retire. Perhaps if Anthony Joshua and, and Usyk fight over here. But really, you're talking at the most three or four events a year of that size. Um, whereas, I think a few years ago, uh, the sport could be doing. In fact, no. Let me let 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 me rephrase that completely. Whereas I think if 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 the sport had everything in order, that it could be doing that maybe once a month. And this isn't necessarily a Daniel Kinahan question. It's not anything to do with uh, the issue of damage to, to 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 fighters. It really is a question of the fact that you are. I don't believe for one second that boxers were better 40 years ago. I just believe that the fights were better and more regular 40 years ago because they were fighting each other. Um, and I believe that until the sport can get some kind of system in place where the best will fight the best, um, then it's it's not going to be as big and it will continue to be marginalised. What doesn't help, of course, is when you do have figures like Daniel Kinahan kind of stealing the attention in a way um, there were a lot of people suddenly interested in Tyson Fury versus Dillian White from the media who would not have been interested in a million years if Daniel Kinahan was not a subplot to that fight. So they're drawing in, the, it's drawing in the wrong kind of eyes, or you could say the right kind of eyes. I mean, for me, um, I wish some of these people that come nip into the sport and say, well, that's terrible. Daniel Kinahan's involved. Some very serious and influential journalists that I respect, by the way. I think it'd be more beneficial if they spent a bit more time here, but perhaps they can't stand to. I don't believe at the time of you and I having this conversation now that we have any idea um, of the true long-term effects of this latest chapter in boxing's history. Um, I think there is every possibility that people that were involved with Daniel Kinahan could face either obvious punishment from law enforcement agencies or um, they could face punishment in that they find it very, very hard to uh, get any work or they get any fights um, and that kind of thing. So I think it's very, very difficult to see or it's very, very difficult at this point in time to speculate what may happen in the future because this particular chapter has not yet concluded, in my opinion. I think it's a long way from, in all honesty. Um, the lessons have been there for boxing to learn pretty much since boxing began, in all honesty. And it's very, very rare that boxing does learn those lessons. Um, I think that you will see the sport continue um, to make the same mistakes over and over again. Um, we can see that within the sport itself with the sanctioning bodies and the confusion they cause and the fact that we, that we still seem to be welcoming them more and more in. I mean, you can go back to the 1970s and you can say, you can go back and you look, look at boxing magazines, you can look at national newspapers when they were interested in boxing and they're saying, what on earth is going on, in, going on here with the sport when there's two world champions per division? Fast forward 
40, 50 years, and we've now got something like seven or eight world champions per division, and the sport, in my opinion, more marginalised than it's ever been before. So to say the sport doesn't learn lessons would be a complete and utter falsehood. However, I think that this might be a slightly different situation um, in that I think that we are now starting to see people in within television companies, television executives, real decision makers now starting to scratch their heads and go, hang on a minute, what are we doing being involved with a sport like boxing when all this is going on? Are you going to have, for example, a television executive on the one hand invest more money into the sport of boxing while with the other fend off difficult questions about the ethics of the sport? Boxing, as I've said before, walks a perpetual tightrope because of its brutal and violent nature. Therefore, in my opinion, surely everything else behind the scenes, particularly in this day and age, when essentially the world's living under a microscope, has to be squeaky clean. That hasn't been the case in recent years. So I do think that for the sport survival, things will have to change. We're seeing it at the moment in amateur boxing. As things stand, as we talk, in 2028, boxing will not be an Olympic sport. Now, 2028 to everybody in boxing seems like a lifetime away. Let's not worry about that now. But believe you me, in 2030, we will have seen the consequences of that, if that is still the situation then. Olympic boxing and amateur boxing um, play such a huge role in professional boxing in the likes of Anthony Joshua and Nicola Adams, Katie Taylor. We could go on and on and on what Olympic boxing can do. Without that platform, we're going to struggle. But the, co- but the reason that that, we're in this situation now is because there are very real allegations aimed at the the governing body about how they were keeping their house in order. In in essence, they were not. So unless people can be, unless the Olympic committee can be convinced that boxing is able to look after itself, then it won't be in the Olympics. That is a massive and loud and nasty warning siren that we should be listening to. And this whole chapter with Daniel Kinahan is another warning siren about the worst effect if we don't listen to if if we don't listen to them and if we continue to act like people are not paying attention to the sport of boxing i think as i wrote in boxing news the accusation has often been why are these people allowed into boxing well the answer to that is there isn't even there's not even a door let alone anybody that would have a key Nobody is in control of these things. It's just open season constantly. And you could say on the one hand, well, this whole episode with Daniel Kinahan should act as a warning. What it might also do is act as a glowing advertisement for the next Daniel Kinahan to say, well, hang on a minute. He nearly made that work there. He nearly got away with that there. If he hadn't been quite so keen to come out of the shadows, he might still be there now and be absolutely fine. So... My concern is, is that, yes, this might be the end of one chapter, but what it might also do is essentially facilitate a next chapter, which could be even worse. So I think it's essential that boxing gets its house in order as, as soon as possible. The, di- the difficulty is, how does it do that? I'm not sure. There is often a rawness and a truth to boxing people. That's a good thing but it can be a dangerous thing too. It can lead us to sentimentalise the sport, to gloss over the parts that are ugly and unacceptable. When he asked questions in recent weeks around Kinahan's involvement in the sport, Donald McRae wasn't exactly welcomed with open arms. 
Indeed, it was striking that the likes of McRae and Christie were seated well away from their normal station at ringside for Tyson Fury's recent victory over Dillian White at Wembley. McRae was in Madison Square Garden for the epic fight between Katie Taylor and Amanda Serrano. Even then, he felt he couldn't escape the shadow of Kinahan. Taylor has never been able to fight in Ireland as a professional, through no fault of her own. It's all down to security concerns since the Regency shooting. From all that we've learned, is it harder to defend professional boxing? It has been harder to defend. I think I should also say that there's always certainly an ambivalence within me towards boxing because, as we've said, it does do good. It does help people who have not, often have nothing else in their lives or little opportunities, have not had education. It gives them an, an opportunity to make something of themselves. It lends discipline and focus and opens doors um, to some economic opportunities and also a feeling of self-worth. Clearly, that boxing has always done that and will continue to do so. But boxing also does damage to individuals. Um, as Chris Dixon's book made clear, we all knew that, but scientifically we can now see and understand even more unequivocally the, the, boxing, uh, the damage that boxing does to individual fighters. In terms of your question about, you know, is it hard to defend boxing? Um, and the question of sentimentality, those two are entwined together because, you know, I find that fighters, I often defend them and say, in, in terms of my work with The Guardian, where I interview sportsmen and women from all kinds of fields, I always come out with the stock line that no other sportsman or sportswoman has the honesty of a fighter in terms of reflecting on their anguish when they lose, their, their fear before a fight. Boxers can be amazingly open and insightful. But there's a sentimentality in, in that statement by me, because boxing is also about lying. Fighters lie to themselves. They say, well, I lost last week, but I'm good for one more fight. I was just unlucky because I hadn't trained well or my manager let me down. So deception is sort of at the heart of a fighter's psychology because they have to con themselves to think that they can keep going on. And also there's deception in the way promoters and managers lie to boxers and dupe them out of money. So for all my grand claims that boxing is full of honest fighters, the whole business is undermined by deception. Um, so I've always known that, and it certainly has become harder to, to defend because what we had, this open secret that all of boxing knew that Daniel Kinahan was um, involved in the business and was controlling it and becoming, in his eyes, and in many ways, genuinely, one of the most powerful men in the business. And yet no one spoke about it. And I, you know, it, it just became, after a while, just disheartening. Um, so yes, it's hard to defend, but like anything, there's a statement someone once made about boxing. Nothing can save boxing and nothing can kill boxing. And I think there is a kernel of truth in that because boxing is always on its knees. It always looks like it's about to be finished. And how can it come back after the latest scandal? This scandal is deeper than most. But I think boxing will stagger on and it will continue. And suckers like me will still follow. And I think, you know, I feel not 
comfortable in my ambivalence, but I'm accepting of my ambivalence. And I still think there's no, and like we saw it in, in New York, you know, 10 days ago or two weeks ago, Katie Taylor, Amanda Toronto, there's still a cloud of Kinahan over that fight, you know, um, and what happens in the future. Kinahan's name still clouds those discussions. But gosh, there's been nothing I have been to for a long time that captured me the way Katie Taylor and Amanda Serrano did that night in the garden. It was absolutely incredible. And there's no other sport that has quite that magnetism and theater and just, uh, well, you can hear I'm battling to find the words um, because it was an incredible night, unforgettable fortitude by, shown by both of those women, unforgettable skill that elevated all of us, actually, even though fundamentally it's about violence and both Katie and Amanda suffered in that fight. And I fear for both of them a little bit because that fight took an enormous amount out of them. But that night and in the days following, it actually gave all, us, all of us some more hope about boxing. So I'm not going to just going to say, well, I'm giving up on boxing and on fighters like that because they are special, special people. We're leaving the five lamps and wandering as night falls. The stroll takes us past the open windows of a couple of boxing clubs and their familiar sounds and smells. On such evening walks in the city, we'd often pass the late poet Brenton Kennelly, smiling and waving and looking so fine. A battered sport is trying to keep on keeping on. And Kennelly's words from his great poem, Begin, come to mind. Though we live in a world that dreams of ending, that always seems about to give in, something that will not acknowledge conclusion, insists that we forever begin. Shadowboxing is presented and written by Kieran Cunningham and produced by Kieran Bradley. Thanks to all the contributors and to Chris Heaney for additional music. <laughs> <laughs>